take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So, I wasn't sure how to do verses, really it's just verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think there's an easy way to do it, um, because it, it feels so out of place. Um, I think of all the chapter, it is um, most centered locally in what was you know, happening at, at a particular place in time. You find things like this in the Bible. For instance, when it talks about slavery. I, I don't know anyone who's enslaved in my day-to-day -day life. And uh, there's a, it's almost a similarity here in that, you know, it's a verse that I'm sure the Corinthians understood and was applicable, less so for us. So I'm going to read verse 29. Offer... Um, you know, a little bit of context and a little explanation about verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. But then we're really going to jump into the verses that follow. So let's just treat it kind of on its own, which again, I, I would not normally recommend doing, but and this verse really does kind of feel on an island to me. And if it shouldn't, you just have to live with my own limitations because to me it's on an island here. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says, and remember Paul is arguing for... Uh, the importance of believing in the resurrection. Okay? And it, one of his points he makes, and this is one in a, in a bunch of them, is verse 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And if you are writing a Bible commentary at this point in time, you say, man, can we just skip over this verse and move on? And let me tell you why. Not because, um, you know, we don't have an understanding about baptism. We do. That's what makes the verse so challenging. If we didn't know what baptism was from the fullness of Scripture, from much of Paul's own writing, then this verse would be like, oh, we really need to you know, carefully consider this. And maybe this is, you know, a practice we should be doing. But because we know so much about baptism, um, a verse like this really throws a wrench into the flow of the chapter. Um, there are, and uh, this is from several different Bible commentaries, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 different interpretations of this verse. But they all pretty much fall into one of two different categories. One uh, acknowledging and dealing with what it appears to be saying and the other 38 or 39 interpretations rationalizing it to uh, interpret it as, as something else. What it appears to be saying is there are those at the time that Paul is writing who were being baptized on behalf of those who had died. Now that's any surface reading will take you to that thought. It's impossible to read it and come to just a different basic thought. Um, and what we know about baptism is it's not something that you can or should be doing on behalf of someone else. We also know that baptism doesn't save anyone. So it's not something that you would do in order to save someone who had perished. So right away we're like, okay, Paul is referencing something that is very strange for our understanding of baptism. And then he says, why then are they baptized for the dead if the dead don't rise at all? So what he's doing here is he's saying people who are baptized for the dead, whatever that means, are doing so with the hope of resurrection. And his point that he is making is pretty clear. The point is not what we would disagree on or what we would struggle with. The point is, hey, look, when someone is baptized, they are baptized in hopes of a resurrection. <laughs> that nobody gets baptized, you know, you shouldn't be baptized without a hope for a resurrection. Now, the reason why he chooses this particular practice, I think, and we'll get into this briefly here, is because you might make the argument that if you got saved, in other words, if you said I'm a Christian and you made a profession of faith in Jesus, you might make the argument that baptism would be, you know, a way of announcing that salvation to everybody else, but it wouldn't necessarily um, 
require a belief in a resurrection. You could say, I'm a Christian and I'm being baptized, my life's being converted because I think I'm now going to have a better life now. And I'm going to, you know, so I'm telling you there's a change. But what Paul is saying is, no, there are people who are baptized not because they're going to live a better life now, but are baptized with a mind towards those who are already dead. And if they're already dead, clearly they're not going to live a better life on the other side of baptism. They're doing that with an eye totally on the resurrection. Now, the other way of interpreting this from the plain reading would be to say something along the lines of, no, it's just oddly worded. And what he's actually saying is there are those who get saved and baptized because of the testimony of those who have died or because they want to be reunited with those who have died and that reunion requires a resurrection so when they get baptized they're entering into faith in a relationship with Jesus hoping for that resurrection because of those who have died and the reunion with them. I can't tell you what was in Paul's mind when he wrote this. Um, you can take either side of the fence. What you can't do is take this one verse and transform baptism into something that we know it's not. We know baptism doesn't save. So you can't say, well, my great-grandpa died you know, a week ago, and he wasn't saved, so now I'm going to get baptized, and then he's going to get to go to heaven. You, you can't do that. You can say, I think Paul's talking about those who are getting baptized for themselves, with an eye toward those who have already died, be it their testimony or their reunion. Or you can say, I think Paul's talking about those who are being baptized on behalf of those who have died, not saving those who have died, but presumably because someone has died perhaps on their deathbed and was not able to be baptized themselves, you can take one of those two sides without going into all sorts of theological doctrinal error, but you can't transform baptism into something that we know it's not. We know baptism doesn't save. Now, the reason why I fall in the first camp is a couple of different reasons. I think Paul is referencing something that was actually happening during the time. Number one, I think it's compelling that that is the most simple reading of the language. Um, and it's not just the most simple in English, it's also the most simple in Greek, in the original language on behalf of the dead uh, seems to be the simplest reading. And notice he says otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead? I don't think Paul is talking about a practice he condones or participates in but I also don't think he's outright condemning it. What I think he's talking about is there were people who would make professions of faith without the opportunity to be baptized. Think, faith, think thief on the cross. And then there were people who were standing up saying, I was a witness to their profession. I'm going to be baptized in testimony to their profession of faith. That's what I think he's saying. Okay. Now I don't think he's saying this is a great idea and you should go around and do this. I think he's simply acknowledging that that was happening. And we know in the second century that was happening. That practice was happening. And in the second century, which is very early to the start of the church, the church puts an end to it. It says, if you're doing this, stop. We're not going to do this anymore. This is not a valid church practice. Don't do this thing. Okay? So I think that's what Paul's talking about. Again, I think he's using it as a part of his broader argument. Hey, you know there are people out there who are being baptized as a profession of someone who's died's faith. Right? They wouldn't be doing that if the person who's died has just ceased to exist and, you know, they're not a person anymore and it makes no difference whether or not, you know, they, they live one second for the Lord or not. I think that's the point he's making. Now, I wouldn't argue against the other side if you want to say no he's saying there are those who are being saved and baptized because of a hope of reunion with those who have died or because of the testimony of faith of those who have died I'm not going to argue with you I, I don't know and I think most faithful Bible commentaries would take that same approach too but I do think the simplest reading is explainable with the caution you can't take this verse argued in the flow of Paul's logic and say oh we should be having baptisms for dead people. Um, I don't think 
Paul is trying to do that, and the church has spoken at large uh, very early after the practice started and said, we're not going to do this. this and, and you pause for a second, you think, why wouldn't you do this? I mean, if you could understand, okay, well, you know, my, someone's in the hospital, and they've been a rebel against God their entire life. They've never been perceptive to the gospel. And now someone is sharing the gospel with them and they get saved and they, they die hours later. Why not have the person who was a witness to that sort of amazing thing, uh, a heart being confronted with the impending reality of death and judgment and yielding to the work of Christ, a, a, th a true thief on the cross situation? Why not have a celebration of that conversion? And if baptism is the profession of faith, why not have some, why not, you know, perform a baptism? We understand it didn't, the baptism didn't save the person, the person's already dead. But why not do it? The, the reason why a lot of these things are curtailed throughout church history is because of what they miscommunicate. Because of the risk of miscommunicating the wrong thing. In other words, if you're going to perform a practice like that, you run a great risk of associating baptism with the salvation of that person. In other words, it's not necessarily heresy, but it is a stone throw away from taking baptism and making it part of the gospel. Like, oh, well, you know, you do that for a while, and then you have someone who dies, and they made a, you know, a deathbed profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and... The family doesn't want to have a baptism. What does that mean? Is a person really saved? Does a person really get to go to heaven? I mean, can we really acknowledge their salvation without baptism? You see, it just, it's a stone throw away from a... And so they say, no, we're not going to do that. Baptism is to be observed individually, and that's settled in the second century. But I think it was happening here. Uh, I don't know how frequently, I don't know how prevalent. This is the only reference of it we see in the New Testament. And I think Paul's making an argument of it. But if you want to take the other side and say, no, I don't think that Paul's talking about that at all. I think he's talking about baptism the exact same way we practice it, and it's just worded funny. I, I'm not going to debate you either. Because the scriptures are clear on what baptism isn't. It's not a saving mechanism. Baptism doesn't transform someone's life. Baptism doesn't cause something supernatural to happen. Now, that's an important point to make. And that's an important thing for you to settle on. Because I've had discussions with people who have not served the Lord for years who do not attend a church, who are not active in the body of Christ, whose life is rampant with sin, who are not living for the Lord at all, and yet talk about the moment they were baptized as if their confidence in going to heaven is what happened on that day. I got up in front of the church and I was baptized and I knew right then and there that I was saved and going to heaven. You know, that happened to me, Pastor. Now ignore the last 20 years of immorality and evil and unfaithfulness in my life because I was baptized when I was 12 years old. Or I was baptized when I was 25. Or whatever it is. That's not what baptism is. Baptism is when we stand up in front of the body of Christ, whatever local assembly is there, and we say, hey look, this is my public profession that I am not the same person I used to be. <laughs> A baptism followed by a return to all the previous old sin means nothing. <laughs> it's like me saying, I'm saying, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm just not going to live like one anymore. No, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's nothing. It doesn't mean anything, right? So a powerful profession of faith is when you see someone baptized and they're surrendering their life to serve the Lord Jesus and then they show up the next week. They show up the next day. They're still there two years later. The sin that was so prevalent in their life is being dealt with by the body of Christ and the Spirit of God and they are transforming and then they point back to that day when they were baptized and they can say, look, I told you then what God had begun in my life and look at my life now. Look at what God, look at where I was when I was baptized. And look at what God has done in my life to this point. Now, now that's a powerful profession of faith. But if the baptism is just your security blanket to make a, 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 an unrepentant sinner feel good when they go to sleep at night, I'm telling you, that, it, that, that's nothing. That's nothing. It, it, it didn't accomplish anything. So, we need to know what baptism is. 
and not have one verse, which is strange, just it's strange, it's always been strange, not have one verse that talks about a practice we don't observe around us transform our understanding of what baptism is. That would be the danger. The danger would be, well, you know, I was doing my daily devotion reading 1 Corinthians 15 the other day and on it, they're talking about baptizing people for dead people, you know, and what does that mean? So understand what it isn't and when you look at a verse, Cross out everything you know it isn't <laughs> before you start entertaining possibilities of what it might be. Okay, that's interpreting Scripture with Scripture. All right? Otherwise, you're going to be left with all sorts of weird contradictions all throughout the Bible that aren't really contradictions. It's just you or someone else has some wild imagination with one verse and they're not willing to take it in the broader scope of God's Word. And that'll lead you towards all sorts of bad practices. And it, it does today. So that is my faithful, I hope, treatment of verse 29. But I want to deal with the point Paul is making, which doesn't have anything to do with baptizing people for dead people. The point he's making is, this practice, whatever it is, whether it's a hope of reunion for those who are being baptized for themselves, or whether it's baptism with the sight towards those who have already died but didn't get the chance to be baptized themselves, either way, the practice only makes sense if you believe in a resurrection. If you don't believe in a resurrection, then dead people are gone. <laughs> we don't need to worry about being baptized for them or being reunited with them. It ain't going to happen. They're gone. This is his point. Just let that sink in for a second. There is no reason... To imagine some warm feeling pie in the sky idea that we're all going to go hang out together after we die. Unless there's a resurrection. And there's no reason to think there is going to be a resurrection unless God has dealt with our sin. And there's no reason to think God has dealt with our sin if the wages of sin is death. There's no reason to think God has dealt with our sin unless we have some mechanism of dealing with it. And that's where the challenge the, the gospel speaks to. That's where it is. What is the mechanism by which I believe that I will die and that some all-powerful being, whether it's the universe or whether it's in an individual being that we call God, what is the justification for believing that I will be given another life or new life or redeemed life? After all, I'm not a perfect person. I am a sinful person. Clearly this higher power that ordained me to live in the first place has also ordained me to die in the first place. So if I'm going, if the same power that gave me life, whether it's, again, the universe or the God of Islam or the Hindu gods or the, the Buddhist idea of nirvana, if the same all-powerful thing that gave me life has also given me death, then on what logical grounds do I believe that I'm going to live again? Now the Bible has a sound answer to that question. God created man to live. Sin condemns man to death. God sent his son Jesus to pay for that sin and to make a way for man to be redeemed from the wages of what their sin has earned. Eternal death. Thus man can have eternal life with God who created them to be eternally with him anyway in the first place. Now there is a sound theological answer for that question. You look at the Buddhist ideas and tell me if you see a sound theological idea or if you just see pixie dust sprinkled over people with really scary ideas about what's going to happen when they die. When I look at the logic behind other belief systems, I'm sorry, I find it wanting. I find it lacking. When I look at the idea that, you know, if I'm a Muslim and I simply live a good enough life, maybe God will let me into heaven because of the good things that I've done. I find that lacking. 
I'm not going to step out onto eternity with that. I don't think a loving God leaves a person who he cares about in limbo forever to know their eternal status. We're talking about eternity. Eternity. Not just for you, but for everyone you love and care about. And we believe the loving God of Islam is just going to sit back there and say, huh, maybe, maybe not, you know. Do the best you can, and I'll let you know someday. I find that illogical, unloving. But the God of the Bible has spoken clearly to these things. Here is your condition. A sinner, condemned. This is why you face death. Here's what I've done to redeem you, to offer you salvation, to adopt you into my family. Here are the terms. Do with them what you will. To me, that's logical. That makes sense. A loving God won't merely overlook all the evil in the world, but will judge it. But a loving God would make a way to be saved from the consequence of all that evil in the world. This is the God of the Bible. I, this is compelling to me. But I'm afraid to the rest of the world, it's pixie dust by another name. It's pie-in-the-sky ideology. That's what Paul is wrestling with. Is the hope of the resurrection real? And on another level, he's asking the question, is the hope of a resurrection consequential to how you live your life today? Is it real? Is it necessary? And what impact might it have? And that's where we dig into verse 30, where he writes, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Now he's asking a question. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Um, the question is, assuming there is no resurrection from the dead, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? That's the question. In other words, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why am I risking my life? That's what Paul is asking. So, he's making the argument that believing in the resurrection of the dead is not merely about whether or not someone lives or dies after they die. <laughs> you know, exists or doesn't exist after they die. But whether or not someone believes in the resurrection of the dead dictates how that person will live their life right now. And what he's saying is, I am living my life now illogically if believing in the resurrection of the dead is optional. In other words, because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, I am losing some freedom in my life right now. I am forced to confront the reality of a worldview through the lens of the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead. If there was no resurrection from the dead, if I didn't have to look at the world that way, I would live very differently. But seeing the world through the lens of resurrection from the dead... I'm compelled to live a certain way. And logically he's saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. What does that mean? I think you could see it twofold. One, it is... Paul's version of the command of our Lord Jesus to take up our cross daily and follow him. Paul, Paul is saying, I do this every day. I take up the burden of living in a fallen world in a particular way that requires my suffering. And when he says, I die daily, you should also see that as his view of the risk to his life because of the way that he was living which was compelled by his view of the resurrection in the world around him. In other words, if you believe in the resurrection, now this is Paul at least, let's not make it about you, let's at least think about it in terms of Paul first. If Paul believes in the resurrection of the dead, he has to live his life a certain way. And how he would explain, how he would describe living his life that way is through the symbolism of sacrifice and death and risking his life. 
That's how he describes his own life lived through the lens of seeing the world under the truth of a resurrection from the dead. It requires, for Paul at least, I won't say for you, but it requires for Paul at least, a life risking, life endangering, embrace of sacrificial kind of service to the Lord. And he gets very descriptive in verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, then what advantage is it to me? Now, here's another one where it, it means one of two things. This is, we don't have 40 different interpretations, but the whole fighting with beasts at Ephesus. Um, in Rome at the time, the gladiators would sometimes fight each other, but they would just as often go into the arena and fight wild animals. Um... Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, I'm not telling you to go watch it, but you could see, you know, these animals come out of the... That part of the movie is about the only part of the movie that's realistic. That part's realistic! <coughs> so Paul is referencing something culturally they all understood was life endangering. Now, we know Christians were often put in arenas like this and devoured and killed. And, um, we don't, I don't know if Paul's saying he had been in that experience himself or if he's simply saying at Ephesus where we know he met great resistance, he was in a life and death situation for the gospel's sake. Like a mob type situation for the gospel's sake. But it's one or the other. What he's saying is pretty clear. Whether metaphorically or literally, his life is on the line in Ephesus in an event that they had heard about and understood. And he's saying, why would I do that? He's saying, if I did that merely in the manner of men, what does that mean, merely in the manner of men? With no hope of supernatural resurrection, with no mind towards seeing God and receiving this crown of righteousness, this, this eternal reward. If I was fighting wild animals at Ephesus merely as a common gladiator would, what profit is that to me? What advantage is that to me? I'm just going to die and means nothing. So you see, and this is, a, this is not mind-blowing for a Christian who's been to church for a long time, but you see here Paul making a, a huge case, a powerful case. He's making the strongest case he can using his own life as an example and talking about death and gladiator type stuff here. He, as he's, you know, if, if we're saying, well, you know, Paul sometimes pulls his punches in his arguments. He's not pulling any punches here. He's taking this to the maximum extreme. And the point he's making is, whether or not you believe in a resurrection from the dead is not some inconsequential part of Christianity. It's fundamental to Christianity. And it completely reshapes a person's life, the way that they live. Now you can't say that it completely reshapes the way that a Christian lives and say, but it's mostly inconsequential. You believe whatever you want. You, you can't do that. If it reshapes somebody's life, it's consequential. It's not optional. That's his point. And then he flips it to the other side. You know, he says, look, if I'm fighting, if I'm fighting wild animals or facing mobs in Ephesus uh, and it's no advantage to me, then... <laughs> Second part of verse 32. If the dead did not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, this is the old, let's eat, drink, and be merry, you know. <laughs> this is the guy, this is the guy in the parable of Jesus. Remember the parable of Jesus from Luke where, you know, there was a guy and he was a farmer and he had you know, an unbelievable harvest and now he's got all this potential wealth, all this food, all of this, all of these goods and he can go rule the market if he wants and it's like, what are you going to do with, with this great opportunity in the parable? What are you going to do with this great harvest you had? You know, and they're an agricultural agrarian society so this is a metaphor they would have understood. Maybe we, you know, maybe we said you got this guy who wins the lottery. I don't know. You take whatever you want to take but this unbelievable harvest. And it's like, okay, what are you going to do with that now? And the guy says, this is what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my barns which can't hold this stuff and I'm going to build the 
the barns I've always wanted and I'm going to fill up the silos and, and then I'm going to, in these barns that I've always wanted, it's going to preserve all this food and I'm going to have wealth for decades of life ahead of me and I'm never going to have to worry about it again. I'll say to my soul, soul, take your rest and be at ease. That's the parable of Jesus. Now, that's coming right from the lips of a lot of Americans. <laughs> that's coming right from my mouth at various times in my life. I won't speak for you, but I can relate to that idea. Boy, it would be nice. You know, what would you do if you won the lottery? You know, well, you know, I, I'm not the kind of person that would buy a mansion or drive the most expensive car, and I wouldn't try, I wouldn't blow through all my money. I would invest it and live off the 5% a year, and then I could do whatever I want. That's the parable. That's exactly the guy. That's, that, that's, <laughs> if that's your answer, you relate. <laughs> you know, that's it. That's the dude. I don't want to worry about life anymore. And then God shows up in the parable and <laughs> very um, judgmentally, the Lord has a habit of being judgmental. Very judgmentally says, you fool. For tomorrow your life will be required of you. And then whose will these things be whom you've accumulated? In other words, you blew it. You had a moment to demonstrate unbelievable faith in God. And you didn't, you didn't even know it, but you're, you, could, you got 24 hours of life left. <laughs> and in this 24 hours of life left, you had a moment with this huge windfall to a Job-like moment to show all the world that your devotion to God is real, that your faith in God is real, that, that you're... I mean, you think about that. The guy had 24 hours, if you take the parable literally, right? The next day. I mean, you have a, you've got a, you don't have time to actually do anything with this money. The verdict on whether or not this guy is a wise man or a fool is entirely what takes place in between his ears. Because he doesn't actually have the time to build the barns or give all the money away or do something for the, he doesn't have time to do it. The verdict of it is all right here. If you take the story, you know, literally, I mean, it's a parable, but still. And he's a fool because he gets this windfall, no idea he's going to die the next day. And right here, he decides where his faith is. And it's not in the resurrection. It's not in victory in Jesus. It's not in eternal reward. It's not in making a difference in God's kingdom. It's his faith is, hey, I just received the ability to never have to worry about life on this earth again. And with no thought towards eternal life, he decided I will take my action based on this life. Well, where was his heart? Where is a man's soul if his life is lived with the concern for this earth alone? Where is his soul? It's not in heaven. <laughs> These are the most challenging things that John the Baptist and Jesus taught about. Um, this is John confronting all the Pharisees saying, look, being a follower of Jesus is not about abiding by all of the rules of the law. The law of God is good, but it's not about that. It's about... Loving the Lord and living sacrificial. I mean, this is John. You who have, what should we do about this, John? You who has an extra cloak, go give it away to somebody else. You know, the soldiers don't, don't abuse people and tax them. I mean, this is John's teaching. Those things aren't in the law. Unless you read the law where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is a mind towards eternity that shapes the way a person lives on the earth. And their actions on the earth reveal whether or not they have a mind towards the things of God or whether or not they're merely using the spiritual things of God as a moral compass for the life they really care about here. And there are a lot of professing Christian people who are merely using God's word, 
who are merely using the church community, who are merely, I'm not talking about our specific church, but who are merely using Christian things to be good governors for the moral teaching of their kids, or good, good limitations for the moral boundaries in their own life, or good wisdom things to think about. And look, the reason they're using God that way is because there is wisdom in God's word for living. You can use God that way, but don't be deceived. This is not about how to live a really profitable and happy life here on this earth. And ultimately, the person with no mind towards heaven gets called to task. And they get found wanting. Now, when you understand Paul's concern here, then it seems like it's an immediate pivot. But if you look at verse 33, and we're only going to go through 34, but if you look at verse 33, you understand why he pivots this direction. The very next verse says, do not be deceived. You understand? He's concerned you're going to mess this up. That I'm going to mess this up. Evil company corrupts good habits. He's quoting a parable. Okay? In other words, if you make your company, if you make your fellowship with those who have a mind towards this world as opposed to those with a mind towards eternity, you Corinthian church where you have people inside your church who don't think that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the resurrection of the dead is central, don't be deceived. That idea is evil and corrupting and if you want to pretend you have good Christian fellowship with people who are going to reject the resurrection, it will be corrupting in your life. It will be corrupting in your church. It will be corrupting in your character. Awake to righteousness, he says. Wake up! I don't know how many times I've said that over the years. I, I use that phrase a lot. Paul does too. Wake up! This is not some small and consequential thing. This is a big deal. Wake up and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God and I speak this to your shame. Some people's knowledge about these things is not from God. If you make fellowship with them, it will corrupt your character. It will lead you into sin. Wake up. This stuff isn't optional. It can't be optional. It's supposed to shape the way you live. There's a famous example of this in the Old Testament. Famous example of one of these eat, drink, and be merry things. It's uh, from the book of Daniel. Daniel twice, two in a row. You don't have to turn there, but there's two sermons in a row. This is from Daniel 5. It's probably the most like famous one of these. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is now like a really old man. And the Babylonian Empire, which was the prevailing empire of the world, is being conquered like live action conquering by the Persians. Like Babylon had conquered the whole known world and Persia is now taking it all away from Babylon, one city and territory at a time. You know, this is way after Nebuchadnezzar. This is his grandson or great-grandson who is, you know, on the throne in Babylon and they're all shut up in the capital of Babylon. And what's not clear in the story but is clear in history is as Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, throws this big feast for himself, he's doing it to distract him from the fact that the Persians are on the doorstep. They are marching on Babylon. They have already taken most of the kingdom. The Babylonian empire is in ruin. And it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold uh, and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So he's throwing a big party trying to ignore impending doom, trying to raise morale, and with no mind towards eternity, with no mind towards God, because this is no man of God, he insults the living God in the middle of the whole party by taking these things that were supposed to be consecrated for use in the temple. He takes them out of Nebuchadnezzar's museum when Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the, the, the uh, Jerusalem, the capital, and he dis distributes all of these things that were supposed to be holy and he gives them to all of his pagan lords and wives and concubines and 
servants and they, they drink and they drink and they drink and then you know what happens, right? In the same hour, a finger appears. Like, I would use the word magically, but it's really, you know, <laughs> miraculously, we use whatever word you want. And it writes something on the wall and they can't read it and, and they remember that there was this guy, Daniel, who had served Nebuchadnezzar, his great-grandfather, and they go and they call Daniel and they say, Daniel, can you... Well, here it is. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah, who my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, they've been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't give me the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. That's a good King James Version word, enigmas. <laughs> now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel had already had one of these positions, but apparently he'd lost it a long time ago. Lost in the transition of king to king. And again, you got to love... If you don't enjoy reading the Old Testament, you're missing the humor. You have to love Daniel in verse 17. After being offered all these gifts, he says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. <laughs> no, thank you. You know... <laughs> Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. This is the view through the lens of, of eternity. And because of the majesty he gave him, all the people's nations' languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down ultimate authority here Nebuchadnezzar had. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and the dwelling was with, his, was with wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. We could have a nice little pause and application there today if we wanted. I hope you know that. The most high God rules over the kingdom of men and he puts and appoints whomever he chooses and he gives no explanation to you. It's a hard lesson for Nebuchadnezzar to learn. I hope you learn it easier than he did. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house, the temple, before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Gods which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. <laughs> Most of us will not get that kind of confrontation in our lifetime unless it comes from a pulpit or a friend or a co-worker or a brother, sister, a mother, a father. Most of us are not going to get a prophet Daniel with a, a hand writing stuff on a wall. I hope you pay attention to the people that God's given you. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written and the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes. And then Belshazzar gives him all the stuff that he told him he would give him. That Daniel said, you can keep it for yourself. And it says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Folks... Um, this, I don't know if you caught the choir song this morning, right? So the choir song um, was from 1997 and it felt like it was 25 years old to me. 
uh, <laughs> it felt old to me. Um, if I'm revealing my heart when I found out we're saying, I'm like, uh, <laughs> um, stylistically not my favorite kind of music, you know? I, however, um, I know one person, as soon as the song started playing, who was going to love that song. And maybe you guys liked it too, but I knew Clayton was going to love that song. I, tw 20 years ago, which when the song was four or five years old, 20 years ago, I'm sitting next to Clayton and Casey Gillen in the choir singing that song. You still hear his voice singing that song. And, uh, but you know, it's aged. And, and I also think that um, our hearts are a little harder, um, some of us, than they were 20, 25 years ago. But if you can put aside the, the melody or the rhythm or the... Here is um, the lines right in the middle. Each voice is another chance to reach the world. Don't let me pray, Lord, for wealth or fame but a spark that sets the world aflame. Help me reach the lost and alone to tell of joy and hope where hope is gone. Now, if you put those lyrics to something a little more my style, I'd, I'd feel great about it every time, but... I don't know, Siri wants to chime in. But I think that... Um, Maybe we've lost sight of what Paul is saying. If you have an eye towards eternity, then you have an eye towards the destiny of men's souls. And if you have an eye towards the destiny of men's souls, then you have a responsibility and an obligation to speak. Just as Daniel had to speak, just as Paul himself is saying in this chapter, I have an obligation to speak. That's why it is profitable. I'm going and fighting with beasts in Ephesus because it is profitable. It is good because of the resurrection. If you see the world through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus, you don't have a choice. You're compelled to live a certain way. Like the man with his huge harvest. You're compelled to live a certain way with that. You're compelled to live a certain way. And, and maybe... In the pessimism of our day and age, especially when it comes to spiritual things, maybe we have lost sight of the fact of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. An evangelical Christian is not a white person or a Donald Trump supporter or a far-right conservative. An evangelical Christian is a Christian who recognizes that the world is going to die and that there is a day of judgment coming. Every human, like Belshazzar, will be weighed in the balances of God. And whether or not you are resurrected to an eternity under God's promises as a child of God in His kingdom, or whether or not you are resurrected to eternal destruction in a lake of fire burning forever, which is the resting place of Satan and all of the angels who fell from heaven with him, whether or not that happens depends on what you do with the person and the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And Christians live with the obligation to share that. I'll tell you something else about Clayton Hampton. We had a men's bowling event just a couple weeks ago. And Clayton was there. And there's a kid from Clayton's bus there. And the mom knew him and they came up and Clayton immediately, like in 10 seconds, was inviting them to church and to come and worship with us on Sunday and to be there. And the lady showed up with her kid the next Sunday. Now you say, oh, well, that's trite. I mean, is she here this morning? Did anybody get saved? What does that even mean? No. Save your pessimism. What does it mean for you to live Seeing the world through the lens of the resurrection. What does that mean? To see the obligation to share light and hope with people who don't have any. Whose hope is gone. Or slowly being drained from them. Who are marching towards the impending moment where they're going to bury their kid. Or bury their dad. Or bury their spouse. Or be buried themselves. What do you see as your obligation if you believe in the resurrection there? Do you have one? You can take the lyrics of that song, go reach the world, and hear the great commission of Jesus Christ. Go ye therefore into all nations. 
And Paul is saying you cannot look at your Christian life merely as, as how is it going to help me live my life now? And if you do that, don't be deceived. Because it will lead you into sin and evil and wickedness. No matter how much you dress it up with churchy stuff, it will be evil. Don't have fellowship with people like that. But if you believe in a resurrection, you will live this way. Paul's testimony, I die every day. And one way is in the hope of God's promises being fulfilled. And the other way is just, I'd really like to see my kids do well and live a happy life. One of those is Christian. And one of those is not. Now I want to see my kids do well and live a happy life too. But the question for me is, do I die daily? I don't know. It's good to wrestle, good to wrestle with. I hope you wrestle with it this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you and I mean, this is the centering work of your word. This is, this, is why, this is why we come back to it because it challenges us to reevaluate and to think and it challenges me. And, and The words coming out of my mouth challenge me. Which is a weird feeling. And I pray that they're received with the work of your spirit in the lives of the people here and that there will be a blessing in the hearts of those who do the evaluation and who ask themselves these tough questions and who don't let themselves escape the edge of the sword that is your word which cuts both ways against sin but also to the deepest part of who we are and how we're living. Lay our lives bare and don't let us play the hypocrite. Bring us into line as a father would. Exercise wisdom and discipline in our lives so that we don't throw them away. Thinking and hoping we're one thing that we're not. Keep us in the faith. Teach us how we should live. Blessed be your name when you give and you take away. Father, we ask that the tithes and the offerings this morning will be used for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.